From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. There were these dark forces out there, the racism, xenophobia, nativism, protectionism. There were a lot of these trends that were going on for years that Donald Trump has taken advantage of. So even if Donald Trump exits the scene, which he will do sooner or later, the Republican Party is still going to be a very sick puppy. That's Max Boot. He's a fellow with the Council on Foreign Relations and a longtime player in conservative politics. He's also the author of a new book, The Corrosion of Conservatism. I speak with him about Trump's takeover of the Republican Party, the future of our own two-party system, and why he left the right. That's coming up. Stay tuned. So the next live event is just two weeks away in New York City. I'm excited to say that tickets are going fast, so please head over to cafe.com slash tour to see Jeff Tubin and me wrestle, verbally, on stage on October 25th. And then for the first time, we'll be live in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles. In D.C., I'll be joined by Meet the Press moderator Chuck Todd on November 15th. And then it's off to L.A., where I'll be talking with Big Sick and Silicon Valley Oscar-nominated writer and actor Kumail Nanjiani. I know that's a lot to process, so go to cafe.com slash tour cafe.com slash T-O-U-R and come see me in New York, D.C. and L.A. Ideally all three. Or just one of those cities if that's easier for you. Now back to the show. Okay, let's get to your questions. This question is from a tweet that comes from Monica Kuntz who writes, I am so excited to see you at UC Santa Barbara tonight, which is where I was yesterday. I didn't have a question yesterday, but in light of Nikki Haley's resignation... I hope you address that topic and the suggestion that Ivanka is to replace her. Hashtag save us. Well, that's a very aspirational hashtag. (laughs) I appreciate that. Obviously, you're talking about the former governor from South Carolina, Nikki Haley, who has most recently served as the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, who, by the way, has gotten pretty good reviews, depending on how you think about these things. Not not everyone loves her. But, you know, considering the nature of how people have performed in the Trump orbit, Nikki Haley, some people think, is not only one of the stars— but also one of the future stars and potentially a presidential candidate, potentially a vice presidential candidate. So, you know, we'll see about that. The other thing interesting before I get to the nub of your question about Nikki Haley is how sort of lovely her departure was. Most of the time we have seen people leave the Trump administration because they're fired after a period of humiliation and torture over Twitter. We are still waiting to see what happens with Jeff Sessions, waiting to see what happens with Rod Rosenstein. None of that happened here. It was a virtual love fest. If you saw any portion of the television appearance from the White House between Nikki Haley and Donald Trump. So she seems to be leaving on good terms. It's not clear what the reason is that she was leaving uh, so suddenly. Caught some people by surprise. Why she's leaving before the midterm elections, that usually doesn't happen. There are some theories about whether or not there's other issues going on. I make it a point, as you'll see in a minute, not to speculate and get into conspiracy theories, but we'll see. So the question has been raised about whether or not Ivanka Trump should replace Nikki Haley. I personally think that's a terrible idea for a lot of reasons that may be obvious. And the reason it's come up is because I think the president was asked about it. And he said himself, uh, well, Ivanka would make a great ambassador to the UN, but I would be accused of nepotism if I did that. And the reason he would be accused of nepotism is because it would be nepotism. (laughs) And you may wonder how it can be that Jared Kushner has a job in the White House and Ivanka has duties in the White House, but they wouldn't be able to, by law, serve as the UN ambassador. And the reason for that, as a former ethics official 
in the Obama administration and Trump administration, Walter Schaub, has been telling us all on Twitter, there's a statute in Title V, the United States Code, 3110, that makes it very clear that certain nepotism laws apply to the president of the United States and certain relations to the president, which include a daughter, are not able to serve in agencies over which the person who hires her or appoints her has control. And the reason why that didn't apply or was said not to apply in the White House was the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice put out an opinion at the beginning of the Trump administration that some people think is poorly reasoned, that basically makes the argument that the White House, you know, the personal staff in the White House, is not an agency. And therefore, Jared Kushner can have all these duties in the White House, but you wouldn't be able to make him Attorney General or Commerce Secretary. And you wouldn't be able to make Ivanka Trump the U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. That seems pretty clear. I think it would be politically stupid. I think it would be bad for the country, but I think it would also be illegal. This next question comes also from Twitter, from the Jen Baker, who asks, uh, At Preet Bharara, could you do a pod about the conspiracy theories that Trump and his supporters keep repeating about the left? I'd like to understand what they're talking about and know the truth, so I might be able to correct the people I know who think this way. Thanks. Hashtag Ask Preet. Well, it's funny you should mention that today. It is not the case that either side, conservative or liberal, Democrat or Republican, have any kind of monopoly on conspiracy theories. But conspiracy theories are the worst, and the people who muck around and trying to make connections that make no sense, that defy logic, and can be readily disproved, I think are really poisonous in a lot of ways. And so I have been subject to a conspiracy theory myself, so I'm glad you asked this question. So over the last week or so, there have been circulating in bizarre conservative circles and a little bit on Twitter, some theory that drags me into the Dr. Ford testimony controversy. There are people saying that there's somebody who had been helping Dr. Ford, who I knew, and I'm always left with a dilemma of trying to figure out, you know, when someone says something stupid and wrong and demonstrably false, do you call it out and correct it and thereby have many, many tens of thousands of more people become aware of the dumb theory, or do you just ignore it? You'll see in the interview coming up, I talk about this quandary with Max Boot. So I, I mostly ignored it. And then I woke up yesterday morning and I saw that sitting United States Senator Tom Cotton, Senator from Arkansas, had picked up on the theory, which is idiotic. Let me tell you what Tom Cotton said on Hugh Hewitt's radio show. He says, Hugh, I believe the Schumer political operation was behind this from the very beginning, meaning behind Dr. Ford testifying and having advanced knowledge of the allegations. Senator Cotton goes on to say, we learned last week that a woman named Monica McLean was Ms. Ford's roommate and that she was one of the so-called beach friends who encouraged Ms. Ford to go to Dianne Feinstein and the partisan Democrats on the Judiciary Committee, as opposed to the nonpartisan Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, I guess. Cotton goes on, he says, well, it just turns out, it just so happens. Now, that's your clue that some conspiracy stuff is about to be said. It just so happens that Monica McLean worked for a Preet Bharara the former U.S. attorney in Manhattan, now a virulent anti-Trump critic on television. I don't think I'm virulent. I think I'm moderate. And former counsel to Chuck Schumer. And so then Cotton concludes as follows, based on nothing. So I strongly suspect that Chuck Schumer's political operation knew about Ms. Ford's allegations as far back as July and manipulated the process all along. It's hard to know where to begin on that. Uh, the, <laughs> let's start with the, with the lie, the falsehood. Monica McLean, uh, I don't know, never worked for me. And I had to do some of my own research using the small but excellent staff that I have. I commend 
a small but excellent staff to Senator Cotton. So it turns out that Monica McLean, nine years ago, had worked for the FBI as a spokesperson. And so she was a spokesperson at the FBI New York office while I was a U.S. attorney. Overlapped for about 14 or 15 weeks. And it turns out there are, you know, two or three or four press releases on which her name appears and my name appears because there are certain cases that we worked on with the FBI. The FBI did not work for the U.S. Attorney's Office. The U.S. Attorney's Office did not work for the FBI. So I wake up and I'm wondering how should I respond to this, and I responded fairly snarkily by saying, hey, Tom Cotton, Monica McLean never worked for me. I couldn't pick her out of a lineup, and we had zero contact. And then to make the point that you can always draw some conclusion based on connections, I said, you know, by the way, Kavanaugh's former deputy, Bill Burke, meanwhile, is a close personal friend. And then I said maybe more obnoxiously than I should have, but I was not happy. I was kind of annoyed. You're not even good at the dumbest of dumb conspiracy theories. So the Washington Post yesterday actually did a whole fact-checking story about it and awarded Tom Cotton a very richly deserved four Pinocchios. My old office confirms that Monica McLean never worked for me and that we don't know each other. Monica McLean's attorney said she has never met me. I have never met her. She has never worked for me. Even if she had worked for me, I'm not sure what that says. The fact that someone worked for somebody nine years ago then leads inexorably to the conclusion that Senator Schumer and others knew about the allegations against Brett Kavanaugh back in July doesn't compute. And what's kind of ironic and more irritating about this than anything else is that the whole issue that Tom Cotton and others are annoyed about is in their mind the sort of conspiratorial smearing of Brett Kavanaugh, of these allegations that they say were not proven And what's his response to that? To do the exact same thing he's accusing other people of. Throwing around conspiracy theories, suggesting that other people have broken the law, including lawyers who have worked on behalf of Dr. Ford. So, you know, there's muck everywhere, but Tom Cotton is really neck deep in it. So, you know, this particular conspiracy theory is, it was irritating to me personally. And so that's why I'm mentioning it. But the the broader problem about conspiracy theories, whether you're talking about Alex Jones or you're talking about people thinking that there are child pornography rings going on in the basements of pizza parlors in Washington, which you may have heard about. It's really noxious, and it's really terrible. And you know the debate has gotten very degraded, generally. And it's even worse when there are lots and lots of people who are prepared to believe all sorts of nefarious things based on nothing. The truth still matters in my book. And I guess the thing to do is to keep a lookout to make sure you listen to sources that you trust and don't jump onto a conspiracy theory on the right or the left. This next question comes from Nelson via email. Love your podcast. Keep up the great and important work. My question is with regards to the rules or policies surrounding Supreme Court justices' recusals. And Nelson says, With Brett Kavanaugh's infamous partisan conspiracy-filled monologue during his judiciary hearing, how can he honestly adjudicate cases that involve any left-leaning issues like Roe v. Wade or Citizens United? From what I've read, Supreme Court justices' recusals are purely at their own discretion. Are there mechanisms for lawyers or members of the House to demand a justice's recusal for certain cases? Great question, Nelson. No, there's no mechanism for a justice's recusal to be demanded by members of Congress. It doesn't work that way. And you're also correct that a Supreme Court justice decides on his or her own whether to recuse himself or herself from a case. And it happens very, very infrequently. I think I've said on the show before, there was a time when people thought that Antonin Scalia should be recusing himself from cases involving the Bush administration because he was a hunting partner at his great peril of Dick Cheney's. So, you know, these things come up from time to time. By the way, it's not just limited to conservative justices. You'll remember, we want to be fair about these things, Justice Ginsburg, who I admire greatly and I think is wonderful, and 
long live Justice Ginsburg, during the election in 2016, said a couple of things about Donald Trump when it was probably better for her to have not said those things because it might call into question, you know, her impartiality going forward. My recollection is she actually apologized for some of those remarks, and she has never recused herself from anything involving the Trump administration. So the likelihood that that will happen is low. I don't expect it to happen. You know, one hopeful note I will strike here, and it may be wishful thinking, and maybe it's silly, but I thought I'd mention it. It may be true that Brett Kavanaugh has a searing hatred for people on the left who oppose his confirmation. And when he says, you know, you'll reap the whirlwind, he means it. And when he gets on the bench, he's going to find underhanded, clever ways to especially socket to liberal causes. Uh, The fact is, he's already a conservative. He was never going to be bending over backwards necessarily to decide things a certain way and turn out to be, you know, David Souter. That was never going to happen. There is an argument to be made, though, that Brett Kavanaugh, and I'm just speculating here, that he cares enough about his legacy, he cares enough about his professional reputation, uh, and he has a long time on the bench. And so knowing that he goes into every oral argument and he writes every opinion, with the world watching to see if he's putting a thumb on the scale and to see if he's going out of his way to whack you know, people on the left who he thinks almost derailed his confirmation, that maybe he will do the reverse. And maybe he will, for appearances and for his own reputation and legacy, a little bit bend over backwards to be and appear to be fair to the side that he thinks almost knocked him out of the seat. That's the kind of thing that happens from time to time. When someone has cast aspersions on your neutrality and your impartiality, it doesn't always happen, but when someone does that, people who care about their legacy in history, and he's going to be one of nine people, he will be in the history books as a Supreme Court justice. Sometimes people like that are regulated by the worry that they are going to be perceived a certain way. So I don't know if that's true. I like to be hopeful about these things. And so we'll see, but no recusals. Look, I had a theory like this about Kavanaugh, an optimistic theory, and I said it to Ron Klain, a former guest, and he said, well, you know what? Everyone loves a fairy tale. I do too. My guest this week is Max Boot. He's been a player in conservative circles for decades, including, among other things, as a senior foreign policy advisor for the presidential campaigns of John McCain, Mitt Romney, and Marco Rubio. He's now a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, a columnist at the Washington Post, and the author of a new book, The Corrosion of Conservatism, Why I Left the Right. I speak with him about how the GOP became the party of Trump, America's turn inward, and how to make centrism sexy. That's coming up. Stay tuned. You know what's not smart? So many things. Lying to federal investigators, yelling during a job interview, and another not-so-smart thing, the way hiring used to be. Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. Read the right resumes with ZipRecruiter. Because now more than ever, we all know the importance of surrounding yourself with the best people. Now there's a smarter way at ZipRecruiter.com slash pre. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology finds the right people for you and actively invites them to apply. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. 
This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Preet. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash P-R-E-E-T. Stay tuned to Supported by WordPress. WordPress powers more than 30% of all websites, from your favorite local shops to the world's biggest companies. When you build your website and your business on WordPress.com, you join a global high-traffic network of organizations and entrepreneurs. With WordPress, you can claim your own corner of the web with a new custom domain name, or use one that you already own. Create a site that fits you with beautiful templates and customizable themes. No design experience needed, lucky for me. It's easy to import and export content to and from your WordPress site, which is good since it's your site and your content. And WordPress offers a range of e-commerce options to promote and sell, from an easy-to-use payment button to a full-fledged online store. Maybe a campaign button. Maybe a snappy slogan on a t-shirt. I read your tweets, and I know you all have some deeply held beliefs you want to share. So go for it with WordPress. WordPress makes it easy to reach a global market and let customers find you. Built-in SEO makes your site search-friendly and ready for the world. You can get your website up and running for just $4 a month. The time to grow your business is now. Build your website today and get 15% off any new plan purchase at wordpress.com slash preet. That's wordpress.com slash preet for 15% off your brand new website. wordpress.com slash preet. Max Boot, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. You know, I usually don't begin an interview with a question about one's sort of fashion accessories, but I can't help but notice... <laughs> that you're a fan of the fedora. I am. Explain that. Well, it begins with the fact that I uh, have a propensity to skin cancer, and so my doctor long ago advised me to wear hats, and I used to wear baseball hats, and I, and I think I look kind of schlumpy, frankly. And then my partner, she said to me, no, you got to upgrade your, your hat game here. And so she went out and got me a beautiful fedora from Barney's, and I have been wearing fedoras ever since. It's a no one looks slumpy in a baseball cap. I just want to tell you that right now. Um, did you have a collection of fedoras? I, I look slumpy. No, you don't. No, you, you don't. don't. No, you don't. Should I wear a fedora? Give it a shot. Okay. You stand out. I'll think about it. So as we sit here, it looks like the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation is going to happen. What do you think about the effect of a confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh on the court, on the country, and on politics? Well, I'm concerned, frankly. I mean, I was initially open to the Kavanaugh nomination. He is more conservative than I am because I'm really a middle-of-the-road conservative. But I also thought that he was eminently qualified, and I thought that Trump had a right to appoint him, and he could have easily been appointed by any other Republican president. And so I thought that the Senate should have confirmed him. But of course, the sexual assault case that Dr. Christine Blasey Ford put forward gave me great pause. And I had even greater pause when I saw Kavanaugh's performance in the confirmation hearing, the second confirmation hearing, which I thought was kind of emblematic of where the GOP is today, and that's putting rage over reason. I thought it was a very injudicious performance. He engaged in very partisan rhetoric, in conspiracy mongering. He was, I thought he was abusive to Amy Klobuchar, for example. He was also evasive and deceptive, and I, you know, I doubt that anything he said meets the standard of perjury, although you would be more of an expert on that than I am. But uh, I, I just thought he was not being very honest. But do you think that it was smart tactically because it shored up from reports a wavering Trump? 
you know, it has galvanized a lot of folks in the Republican Party, voters included. So, you know, if, if he had been as mild-mannered and reasonable as people are now saying that he should have been, do you think he would have had the same chance at confirmation? As a matter of pure politics, I think it was effective because it played to the constituency in the White House and it played to uh, where the Republican Party is right now. They don't care to examine the facts too closely on anything, whether it's on climate change or the effect of tax cuts or the Kavanaugh nomination. They have their positions and they take a win-at-all-cost attitude and Kavanaugh feeds into that. But I'm afraid the, the impact of that is going to be to further politicize the Supreme Court, which is already way too politicized, I think. And I mean, I just don't know how plaintiffs who are coming from the left side of the of the political spectrum can possibly imagine they will get a fair hearing from somebody like Kavanaugh, who revealed himself to be a very partisan Republican. Do you have any criticism for how the Democrats, particularly in the Senate, handled the nomination? Sure. I mean, I thought that, you know, uh, Senator Feinstein should have done more early on to investigate Dr. Ford's allegations. And it was unfortunate that they wound up being held as long as they were and then kind of sprung at the last minute. What's dismaying to me as somebody who is now become a, a militant centrist is... <laughs> We're going to come back to that. Yeah, what's dismaying to me is how everybody is locked into their positions. You know, the fact that Democrats were going to oppose Kavanaugh no matter what, even if he was the squeaky clean choir boy and Republicans, it didn't matter. Even if every allegation against them was true, they would still support him because that's just where the two parties are. That troubles me greatly because it's a very debilitating uh, situation for our country. So you've written this book. It's called The Corrosion of Conservatism why I left the right. I see what you did there. It's very clever. Yeah. Did you come up with that? I came up with the subtitle, but I got to give my editor credit for the, for the title. But the subtitle is the best part. Okay. Thank Don't you. tell your editor. All right. Max Blue, very big letters, your name. Nice. Yeah. That wasn't in my contract. <laughs> that was up to the publisher, whatever they want to do. And there's, a, there's an ailing elephant on yeah. the cover. That's actually the coolest element because that's actually from a 19th century Harper's cartoon by Thomas Nast, the great cartoonist. Right. Of course. And on, just to point out, on the back book jacket, there's you in a fedora, tilted very fashionably. Yes, indeed. Is that, did your partner tell you to tilt the hat that way? The, the tilt I will take full credit for. Right. So I assume you wrote the book because you had something to say and you've said a lot in the book. Who's the audience for this book? Well, I think anybody who's interested in American politics and is trying to make sense of where we are in this moment with the emergence of Donald Trump and his domination of the Republican Party. I mean, this has been an incredibly disorienting period for me. And part of the reason why I wrote the book was just to try to come to terms with what's happened because it's been so bizarre. I mean, you know, I'm somebody who was a lifelong conservative and a Republican. I, you know, I wrote for conservative publications. I was a foreign policy advisor to three Republican presidential candidates. And I never in my wildest dreams imagined that somebody like Donald Trump could become A, the nominee of the Republican Party and B, the president of the United States as that's actually come to pass, and as, as we've seen his tenure in office be as erratic, tumultuous, and scandalous as many of us had expected, he's nevertheless kept the support of something like 90% of Republicans. And so this has been earth-shattering, soul-shattering for me. I mean, these are my former friends and colleagues who are now betraying everything that I thought we all believed in. And I'm just trying to come to terms with that. How did this happen? What does this mean? And I'm trying to describe my own process of how I became a conservative and, and an American because I wasn't born in this country and you know how I became disenchanted with the right because of these developments of the last few years. You were born in Russia. I was. I wonder what the president thinks of that. 
<laughs> that renders your whole book suspect, does it not? I, I'm sure it does. I <laughs> it's mean, a joke. His, it was a joke. His, his joke. followers are on Twitter are you know accusing me of being a Russian spy, which apparently these Trump supporters they all engage in like this double think or double talk where. Uh, if you call out the president who supports Vladimir Putin, that makes you the Russian spy. I, I, I'm still trying to right. scratch my head about that. Right, you're the spy. Yeah, I'm the spy. You're the spy. Yeah, um, no puppet. You're the <laughs> you're the puppet. <laughs> right. No, it's not childish at all. Um, there are a number of folks, some of whom have been on the show, who are, you know, lifelong conservatives, like you described yourself, intellectuals, writers, authors, political operatives, people like Steve Schmidt, Nicole Wallace, David Frum, Bill Crystal, and others. Do, do you guys have a club? Do you, do you go somewhere like every Thursday and, and just and and drink just, heavily and drink <laughs> or are you all sort of independently doing your thing? Uh, we're all pretty independently doing our thing. I mean, I don't, frankly, I don't even know Nicole Wallace or Steve Smith. I, I do know Bill Crystal and I'm, and I'm friends with Bill. There's certainly no never Trump Politburo to tell us what to say or do. We're all uh, pretty independent actors. Why do you say Politburo? There's Proving my, the there's spy my Russian point. roots again. Yeah, you know, no, there look, you go. These are subtle things. Yeah. I just want to point them out yeah. to everyone. Can't get anything by you. That's why, that's, <laughs> that's why it's the world's most successful podcast. Exactly. Max. Um, so you say a lot of things about Trump in the book, and then you've said some things very recently as well. And one thing you, you wrote just in the last few days, I found very interesting. You, you said, it is too early to conclude that Donald Trump is the worst president ever. Some might disagree with you. So you say it is too early to conclude that Donald Trump is the worst president ever, but it's not too early to conclude that he is the worst person ever to be president. Why don't you explain what the distinction is? I mean, I have a very low opinion of the Trump presidency, but I'm also a historian, and I think we need to reserve judgment until the presidency is actually over. And, you know, if you're talking about the worst presidents in our history, the worst presidencies, I mean, it's going to be hard to beat, frankly, somebody like James Buchanan or, or Andrew Johnson. I mean, we've had... We've had a few stinkers in our history, and it may well turn out to be that Trump is, in fact, the worst president. But again, I think we got to wait a few years to reach that judgment. But just in terms of who he is as a person, we know who he is as a person, and he's not changing. He's been the same person for more than 70 years, and it's a horrible, horrible human being who has utter darkness where his soul ought to be. And I think every day we see more examples of that. I don't disagree with you, but I just wonder why that matters. You could have an awful human being, if you think Donald Trump is such a person, he's an awful human being, but let's say the economy hums along, we keep the peace, some other you know, things happen that are good for America, but he's a terrible person. And then you have another president, I'm not saying Jimmy Carter is such a person, but you might have another president, Jimmy Carter for the sake of argument, who I think most people think is a wonderful person and lives modestly and you know, practices his faith and helps other people and lives a non-ostentatious life. And a lot of people say it was a disastrous presidency. So why all the hullabaloo then about the indecency of Donald Trump if you can have a good presidency even while being a bad person? Well, I think that is true. I mean, you, you certainly can have somebody who is far from a choir boy who makes a good president. And many of our previous presidents have been have been deeply imperfect, although I think none of them perhaps as imperfect as Donald Trump. But there are a lot of consequences of Donald Trump's character failings. It's not just personal failings that have no impact on the public. They do have a large impact on the public. I mean, when the president lies in public an average of eight times a day, according to the Washington Post, that degrades our country, that degrades our society. When the president expresses sympathy for white nationalists, when he uses 
horrible racist and xenophobic rhetoric to run down Muslims or Latino immigrants, that has an impact on our country, even beyond the actions that he orders. And he does order actions like locking up uh, the children of undocumented immigrants or breaking the law, according to his own lawyer, Michael Cohen, by conspiring to pay off these two women with whom he had affairs in violation of federal campaign finance laws. So I don't think you can draw a bright line between his personal failings and his public performance. And that's something that conservatives themselves used to believe. I mean, given the way our political system is structured, we don't have a king. The president is supposed to be both the political leader and the head of state. So he is also supposed to unify and and unite our country and, and lead all Americans. That's something that conservatives went on a great length about when Bill Clinton was president. Bill Clinton certainly had had major failings, but I would say, you know, he's a candidate for canonization compared to Donald Trump, who is a far more deeply flawed individual. And all of a sudden, conservatives have gone silent about that. And they take the position that you just described. Well, all of his personal failings don't matter. It doesn't matter what crackpot stuff he tweets. As long as the economy is growing, that's the only thing that matters. And I think other things matter as well. Do you think if other things go sour or south and people are not so happy with the direction of the country, Do you think then that all these other failings that you're talking about, lack of decency, character issues, et cetera, will then become important? Absolutely. I mean— But why should that be? Well, I mean, that's just the reality of politics. I mean, why is it that Richard Nixon's impeachment was made more likely by the oil shock and the recession of the early 1970s? And yet it was. I mean, there's no direct connection, but it affects how people— view the president. And right now, Trump gets some, I would argue, unearned goodwill because of the robust state of the economy. Uh, Even so, uh, he is way below what a normal president would be with an economy growing as strongly as it is now. I mean, any other president would be well over 50% approval, and Trump has trouble breaking 40%. And I think that's the penalty he pays for being a horrible human being who does all sorts of crazy, erratic, terrible things. But if we have a recession by 2020, as a lot of economists expect, I think at that point, he's going to go into free fall. Do you think that all of your assessment of Donald Trump is rational or some of it visceral? I think it's largely rational, but I, I have to admit that some of it is visceral just because, you know, the things that he says are so hateful and so crazy that I do react emotionally to it. I mean, I'm not Mr. Spock here. I can't look at everything and just put it into my data bank and calculate out the correct response. I do react emotionally. And I have really since he began his presidential campaign. I I would add, I mean, despite his birtherism, despite all this other stuff, I didn't really know what to make of Donald Trump, except that he was this kind of crazy guy who was this horrible self-promoter. But, you know, if he had behaved in a more rational insane and sober fashion on the campaign trail, I might have been more open to him. But in fact, remember how he he began his campaign coming down that damn escalator at Trump Tower and attacking Mexicans as rapists and murderers. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I was outraged. And then a few weeks later, he said that he didn't respect Senator McCain because he didn't like people who were captured. I was outraged. So, I mean, part of that was emotional. Yes, I am deeply, deeply offended by the way he behaves, the kind of example he sets, the way he denigrates minorities, the way he picks on those less powerful than himself. I'm outraged by all that at a logical level. I think he's also very bad for the country and the world. But I do have this intense sense of outrage. And I'm outraged that there are people who are not outraged. So I was going to ask you that. That was my next question. So what do you make of the people who you like and respect and you think, you know, are good faith voters and observers of politics 
who are not outraged? Or do you think there's a lot of people who are, but they just suppress it for other self-interested political or economic reasons? The most disturbing reality, I think, is that a lot of Trump supporters see his hateful rhetoric and attacks on minorities not as a bug, but as a feature. And that's actually what they like about him. Now, if you talk about politicians in Washington, in a lot of cases, they don't actually like him, but they're just making a cynical calculation that they have to appease him and his supporters in order to win re-election. In some ways, I think the most troubling people are those, my peers, the people that I that I worked with and was friends with for a long time, kind of conservative intellectuals. Uh, you know, at the beginning of 2016, I didn't know a single conservative who had anything positive to say about Donald Trump. And now, aside from a handful of us never-Trumpers, it's hard to find any conservatives who have anything negative to say about him in public. So why did they make that reversal? Well, you know, one of my oldest friends, he said something to me that, that just rocked my world in the summer of 2016 at a time when Donald Trump was was winning the nomination. And I said, I can't stand this guy. I, there's no way I'm going to support him. I'm going to vote for Hillary Clinton. She is way more qualified to be president. And he said to me, you know, Max, uh, your mistake is you think politics is about ideas. You don't understand. It's really about tribal identity. And I'm part of the Republican tribe. And I got to go with my tribe. That rocked me. I mean, I couldn't believe that somebody was actually being forthright enough to say this, but I think that is a lot of a lot of what Republicans think. Are you surprised by how many more people were tribalist in that way than you had thought? Exactly. Yeah. So, so some of the people that you refer to and that you know we've seen in the news were quite quite harsh on the president until he won. Right. Right. Yeah. They like, include Rick Perry, right. who, as you have written, former governor Rick Perry of Texas had called Trump a cancer on conservatism. <laughs> And as you write in your typical witty fashion, he said Trump was a cancer on conservatism before endorsing said cancer and being rewarded with a cabinet post. Rand Paul had called him a delusional narcissist before endorsing said narcissist. And then you say, most painful of all for me, because you worked for Senator Marco Rubio as an advisor, whose presidential campaign went from denouncing Trump as a con artist to endorsing said con artist. And the list goes on. Lindsey Graham, also chief among them. Yeah who used to call Trump a kook and now is his golf buddy. Right. Are you angry with them? Yes. I am angry and I am disillusioned because there are a lot of people that I had respect for. I confess I never had that much respect for Rand Paul or or Rick Perry, but you I know, did They have... listen to this podcast, so you, okay. you're going to know that now. All right. Well, I, I'm out of the closet. <laughs> okay. I probably said disrespectful things about them in the past, but I had more respect for somebody like Marco Rubio or Paul Ryan, or for that matter, Rudy Giuliani, who I think was a very effective mayor in New York. And so it's been deeply demoralizing to me to see the way that they have really prostituted themselves before Donald Trump and have betrayed everything that they claim to stand for. So you have some prescriptions in your book, not just sort of a diagnosis. And you say a thing that actually is reminiscent of something that Steve Schmidt said on this show some time ago. You said that what has to happen is, is the demolishing of the GOP. Why? Why can't there just be you know, reform or tweaking of a party? This happens with the Democratic Party from time to time, the GOP from time to time. Why are people like you and some others speaking so radically about what needs to happen? Because I think a lot of the problem is that it goes beyond Trump. I think in some ways, Trump is more a symptom than the cause of the Republican maladies. And having broken out of the Republican bubble has also made me reflect and look back on the history of the Republican Party and realize the extent to which there were these dark forces out there, the racism, xenophobia, nativism, protectionism, isolationism, 
the know-nothingism, all these forces were out there for a long, long time, and they weren't necessarily dominant, but they were growing in strength, and you see the milestones along the way, such as the founding of Fox News in, in 1996, the emergence of Sarah Palin, the Tea Party. There were a lot of these trends that were going on for years that Donald Trump has taken advantage of. So even if Donald Trump you know, exits the scene, which he will do sooner or later, the Republican Party is still going to be a very sick puppy. And I think you got to have a major turnover. They have to, at a minimum, a lot of Republicans need to pay a very heavy price for the way that they have demonized the most powerless among us, how they have played on the worst bigotry uh, in America in order to win and accrue power for themselves. What they are doing is so deeply immoral and so destructive to our country unless they pay a very heavy price, they're going to continue doing more of it. It's going to get worse. So they have to be told, no, this is not how you're going to get elected in America. What we need is a moderate, you know, center-right, responsible party. I mean, this is probably my fantasy, but I would love to see the party remade in the image of somebody like Dwight D. Eisenhower. That, that's the kind of party, center-right party I'd like to see. I believe he wore a fedora also. That is true. Uh, right? See? Yes. I know my, <laughs> my sartorial history. So... You believe that the Republicans believe in limited government. Do you still believe in that? Absolutely. Do you believe in lower taxes? Yes, as long as we're not blowing a hole in the budget, which is what the Republican tax bill did. It seemed to me from the litany of things that you mentioned, they more were in the category of attitude and rhetoric and treatment of people rather than hard policy. No, and I think if, part if, of it is, is hard policy too because, for example, I'm very dismayed by the fact that Republicans reject the climate science. They just reject the fact that, that global warming is occurring, where they have taken a very absolutist position on gun control, where they believe that anybody should have any kind of weapon, even even assault weapons. But that's not so new. The, the, the view on guns, yes, I know it's hardened over time, but it's not that radically different from the 80s and the 90s, is it? Yeah, you're right. I mean, it didn't start with Trump, but it's been getting worse over the decades because, you know, as recently as 1994, when Congress passed the assault weapon ban, it was endorsed by Ronald Reagan. I mean, can you imagine a prominent Republican today endorsing a ban on assault weapons? So I think that the Republican Party has been gradually losing its mind for decades. You know, I, I did not speak out before when I was part of this conservative machine. I just, you know, I had... I had some disquiet about it, but I kind of stayed in my lane, the national security lane, and now I'm kind of realizing, wait a second, this is out of control. You were like the frog in the boiling water, not realizing it was getting hotter, and then just before it got too hot for you to live, the Donald Trump frog jumped into the pot of water, Yeah, and you realize, I got to jump out. <laughs> yeah, I think there's, there's something to that metaphor, yeah. Okay. You mentioned Ike, and so your dream, your dream candidate at the beginning, you said you were a militant centrist. And I presume you use that phrase because it sounds like a contradiction. Right. But what the hell do you mean by that? Well, what what I mean by that is that I reject the extremes of both sides. And, you know, we've mainly been talking about the extremes of the Republican Party, which I think is the greatest threat that America faces right now. But I also feel that as the Republican Party is going further to the right, the Democratic Party is also going further to the left. And so I'm not, it's hard for me to support their budget-busting ideas, providing federal jobs for lots of people or free tuitions or, you know, free medical care for all. I, you know, I'm, I'm upset enough that Republicans are spending us into bankruptcy. I certainly wouldn't want to see that bankruptcy accelerated. And so I try to hew now pretty much to the center, which is, you know, I'm basically socially liberal, but I'm fiscally conservative. I believe in American leadership. I believe in free trade, which, by the way, 
is an area where both Democrats and Republicans are pretty bad right now. They're both actually pretty protectionist. I believe in, in immigration. I believe in stricter gun controls. I would say individually, these positions probably poll pretty well. But when you combine these this set of views, there is not really a party out there that represents that set of political preferences. I'm not unique in having these these views. I think there are others who share them, but both the Republicans and Democrats are moving so far to the extremes that they're leaving people like me behind. Who's your favorite Democrat? Gosh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not familiar with Mr. Gosh. I mean, is there someone, and, and then you, you I mean, mentioned moderate, other people. Moderate Democrats. I mean, I like moderate Democrats like Tim Kaine or, or Mark Warner, uh, or there's a you know newer generation. You like, you like the boring guys. The, the same people, yeah. I mean, there's a... There's well, a the reason I ask is because yeah. you, you said, you're saying in the book, there needs to be somebody who can make centrism sexy. Yeah. Seeming to concede that militant alone is not sexy. Right. But then when you when you talk about the people that embody this sort of centrism, it seems by definition almost you're talking about folks that are not overly charismatic and that are just sort of reasonable, rational, level-headed, have their you know fingers on the pulse of what matters. Is there an inherent conflict and paradox there? There probably is some. I mean, it's hard to find a very, you know, sexy centrist. I mean- Can you name one? I can name one. Uh, Macron, the president of France. And I think that he actually pulled that off and he made uh, centrism exciting and and managed to get elected in France, breaking the power of the established political parties. And I would love to see, you know, something like that happen here. You know, now that I am not affiliated with any political party, I'm actually part of the largest party in America because there are more independents in America than there are Democrats or Republicans. So I think there is hunger for an alternative. The question is, who is that alternative? The example that I use in the book is maybe somebody like a younger, slightly more charismatic Michael Bloomberg. Slightly more charismatic? How much more charismatic? I mean, Mayor Bloomberg is is very competent. I think he would be a great president. The problem is in campaigning for the office, you know, does he have the pizzazz that voters want. I don't know. I mean, a lot of people do use centrist rhetoric. The challenge is, can you actually govern in a centrist fashion? That That's the hardest thing. But is the problem there, does it lie with the politicians or does it lie with the people and their expectations? I think that there is a constituency in America for a more centrist outcome. But I mean, you look at what happens, for example, with Republican members of Congress and the way that districts are gerrymandered. What that means is the politicians, the people in Congress, don't really care what most voters think. They only care about primary voters. So they're all terrified, not of the mainstream voters. They're terrified of the, of the most extreme partisans. You know, until Donald Trump is gone, people have to feel their way and how to deal with him. And you have something to say about that also, which seems to be sensible that to take Donald Trump on, you can't be like him. And the person you used to advise, Marco Rubio, tried that briefly at the end of the 2016 campaign to terrible effect. Right. You can't get a lot of mileage by making fun of the size of Donald Trump's hands. That's not the way to take him on. But do you see why it's why it's tempting if, if Donald Trump can mock you and abuse you and he does well at it, that a person might think, well, maybe I can, I can try right. that. Is the problem that it's a bad strategy? There's the problem that the person who is otherwise decent begins to look completely non-genuine when they adopt the practices of a person who is not decent. That's it, exactly. And I think the problem is that being a buffoon is a core part of Donald Trump's identity. <laughs> uh, so he seems genuine when he acts in buffoonish ways. Right. But people who are more, more sober it's and serious, totally believable. Yeah, it's believable. I mean, and that's in fact what voters love about him is the fact that he is boorish, that he is offensive. But if you have somebody who is sane and otherwise sober, 
uh, and they all of a sudden start acting in this manner, it just seems outlandish and unconvincing and beneath them. And that's that's what Marco Rubio discovered. Is that a reason why you think a lawyer who just happened upon the scene named Michael Avenatti maybe has some traction because he is what he is? Oh, my goodness. I truly hope Michael Avenatti does not run for president. He is somebody who's actually, I think, you know, very good at giving Trump uh, a dose of his own medicine, and he had some success with Stormy Daniels. Are you glad that he exists for that reason? I am glad because, I, I mean, I was skeptical of the Stormy Daniels case. I was skeptical that it would come to anything because, you know, we all knew that Trump was this horrible lecher and adulterer. That was not news. But it actually resulted in, in something very, very significant, which was the guilty plea for Michael Cohen implicating Trump in the commission of two federal crimes. That's that's hugely significant. And I got to give Avenatti credit for helping to bring that about. But, you know, he needs to go back to his law practice. We don't need him running for president. Right. But what's interesting yeah. about what you said is that the way to counter Trump is not to be like him. But the candidates themselves are not the only humans who participate in the political process. So it sounds like what you're saying a little bit is, yeah, the candidates who were taking on Trump directly in 2020 or when they did in 2016 should be, you know, lofty and adopt, I guess, the principle that Michelle Obama said, which is when they go low, we go high. Right. Do you believe, given what you just said, that it's still useful to have some people who subscribe to a different view like Avenatti might, which is when they go low, we punch them in the face? Right. No, I, there's no question that if you're going to be in, in a gutter fight, it, it's helpful to have a few gutter fighters, but I'm just saying that they should not be running for president. I mean, there's a role for Michael Avenatti. It's just not in the White House. So let me change the question. So you have your lofty, high-minded politician running against the person you described as a buffoon in the form of the president. Can they have nasty street fighters who get in the mud as their campaign chairman? I mean, look, for example, at Lee Atwater and George H.W. Bush. Was that good? That's that's a great question. I mean, it was certainly good politically for George H.W. Bush. I mean, was it good for the soul of the Republican Party? Was it good for the country? I have some doubts about that. I mean, I've been reassessing that. I mean, it was a strange paradox where you had George H.W. Bush, who was one of the most decent, well-qualified individuals ever to be president. And then he, he, in fact, had this dirty campaign manager who was willing to do anything it took to win. And, you know, there's an argument, I guess, for that, sadly, in, in, in the way that American politics operates. Yeah, I'm just trying to explore the issue of, you know, how realistic it, it is to have a view that, you know, our politicians should be high-minded and soaring and centrist when the other side isn't. You got to mix it up some, but I think you got to, with the presidential candidate in particular, he needs to, he or she needs to mix it up on the issues. But I think there are ways to engage, you know, very sharply and call Donald Trump out for the fact that he is an embarrassment to America. I mean, make that clear. Don't just say, I disagree with him on issue X. You got to say he is unfit and unqualified. He sullies the office every time he enters it. You can certainly call him out for his character and behavior. Do it in... And in an above-board fashion, don't engage in his buffoonery. The other way you put it, aside from, you know, sort of sexy centrism, is to say that what maybe someone needs is a sane Donald Trump. What does that look like? Well, what I meant by that was, you know, somebody who breaks out of party orthodoxy and is willing to do things in an unconventional fashion, but is not as erratic and wild as Donald Trump is. Donald Trump came in and took over 
the Republican Party, even though he had very few Republican credentials and most of his views were at odds with the views of the Republican Party. Nevertheless, through sheer charisma and, and force of personality, he won the Republican nomination. If there is kind of that sexy centrist out there, he or she could come in and take over the Republican Party or take over the Democratic Party or run as an independent and you know impose his or her personality on the process in the way that Donald Trump did. But of course, you know, minus the crazy, erratic, offensive behavior that Trump engages in. Are you a globalist? Yes, proudly. So what is this business about being a globalist and why the term in certain Trumpian circles is a slur? Well, because Trump and his coterie are arch nationalists in the Trumpian uh, vision Basically, white Christians are the only real Americans. People who were born here are the only real Americans. And it's a very—he really espouses a a very dark vision of white nationalism. And part of that is attacking so-called globalists, which I think often has nasty, anti-Semitic overtones. What's interesting about some of this is the political power of language and the ability of some people—in this case, we're talking about the Trump administration and his allies like Steve Bannon and others— who have figured out a way, pretty successfully, to take what seem like otherwise neutral words and terms and turn them into something terrible, or um, to invent terms and apply them to things that are sort of mundane and ordinary and make them seem like something terrible. So globalist, you know, I don't know. (laughs) It sounds like someone who thinks it's important to be connected to the rest of the world and not be alone and sheltered. Deep state is a term that's been made up by folks, which overstates an issue that they think is important. What do you think about the use of political language and its power and also the danger of it? Well, it's very Orwellian. I mean, they it's like they're reading 1984 as a how-to manual on how to manipulate speech and therefore to manipulate thought. And, you know, Trump has been very ex- explicit in this when he says the truth isn't the truth. And basically, don't believe your own lying eyes. Believe what I tell you, what the Supreme Leader says. And if the what the Supreme Leader says changes, then the truth changes. I mean, it is scary. It is frightening the way that Trump is mounting and, and his allies are mounting this assault on the truth. And, you know, utilizing this kind of deceptive language is certainly part of that assault, along with just flat-out lying, which Trump does more than any other president in our history. Does any particular party have a better vision of free speech? Parties, maybe, is not the right word. I think ideologues on both the left and the right, I think, are guilty of transgressing on speech. There is a real war on free speech driven by the far left on campuses where uh, conservative speakers are, are sometimes shouted down, not allowed to speak. That's deeply troubling to me, but I don't think Republicans or conservatives have the high ground either when they're complaining about limitations on free speech on campus. And at the same time, they're saying that NFL players ought to be fired for expressing their their peaceful protest while the national anthem is being played. That's not upholding free speech either. So I think there's a lot of problems on both sides. People talk about the shutting down of speech on campuses. That's not what concerns me as much, maybe because I'm many, many years you know, removed from college. But what does bother me some is that there are a lot of people I know who are thoughtful, not just the guests who come on the show, but other people I know who are thoughtful and smart and who have particular views about things that are going on, but they deviate a little bit from what the sort of main orthodoxy is of the day. And they will not utter those things publicly for fear of being vilified and attacked unduly. Do you have views that you don't express for that reason? 
I mean, I, I, I don't think I have a lot of unexpressed views. Okay. I, I, I'm pretty free about expressing my views and taking the uh, torrents of hate on Twitter as a result of that. But I think those flash mobs of hate on Twitter, for example, and on other social media, I mean, I think it is problematic because people tee off on, on some individual and it may or may not be uh, fair, but it just builds up into this kind of emotional firestorm that is something that that is a threat to speech. It's unfortunate if people are afraid to speak out because they think they're going to be vilified. You know, it's, what's funny is on Twitter, this happens from time to time. By the way, you're a great follow on Twitter. Thank you. Is it people should follow? At, at Max Boot. And I, I got to add, by the way, you got you got some serious Twitter game yourself. Oh, well, well thank, thank, you, thank you very much. That doesn't pay the bills, though, my friend. <laughs> and what will sometimes happen is you'll see something terrible being written and wrong. And from time to time, I will respond to it and I'll retweet it with, you know, sort of my objection to it or my mocking it in an effort to engage in my own right of free speech. And sometimes I get a reaction from folks saying, when you retweet something that's vile, even to bash it, you're giving the vile people a greater platform. I still do it because I think it's important to meet, you know, arguments with arguments. But are some of those folks right? It's a difficult issue. I mean, I struggle with that myself because like you, I get a lot of crazy tweets and emails. But I think there is some value in exposing these viewpoints and making people aware of the fact that they're out there. I mean, for example, you know, when I wrote a column praising President Obama, I got this horrible, hateful, racist, garbage email. And I think I posted one of them. There are people who think like this. And I think it is important to alert people that there is this hate mongering, which is going on. I agree with that. Do Do you follow people not only that you disagree with, but who make your blood boil? A few, I guess. I mean, I certainly see a lot of tweets that make my blood boil because whether I follow them or not, they will get retweeted. <laughs> get retweeted. Right? Yeah, I think the craziest account I follow at the moment is called Real Donald Trump. At, at, at Real Donald <laughs> Trump. I mean, I got I got to check that one out. Yeah. Well, this is this is actually a dilemma, right? Because when we respond to his insane tweets. Are we basically giving him a way to get that message across? Even though you're criticizing him, you're also conveying his message, right? I, I, don't, I don't know any way out of that dilemma. So that takes me back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier. If these loud fringe voices that are so you know, salacious and attention-grabbing on the far left or the far right get so much attention and cause us to talk about them, how is the sexy centrist supposed to break through? Well, not with insults. I mean, I don't think that, or by spreading crazy conspiracy theories or, you know, engaging in hate speech, which is the way that that people on the extremes do it. I think you have to break through in part with solid arguments uh, that are pithily expressed. But I also think part of it has to do with, with having the right outlook, the right resume, the right experience, the right personality, somebody who is appealing. I mean, you look at somebody like Dwight D. Eisenhower, he wasn't necessarily the most charismatic or flashy individual, but he was highly competent. He gave people a sense of security. They felt like they were in good hands with this guy because he knew what he was doing. He had their best interests at heart. He wasn't going to do anything crazy. And I think after you know a few years of Donald Trump, we may be ready for somebody like that again. At least I hope so. What's your greatest hope for what readers should take away from your book? Well, I think they should they should take away an appreciation of how distorted and extreme the Republican Party has become and how twisted a lot of the ideology that so-called conservatives promote actually is and how important it is 
for us to move away from the brink and, and move away from the extreme right as well as the extreme left and find this kind of sane, centrist alternative because, you know, I think the future of our country is truly at risk here. You have chosen for an epigraph in your book a stanza from W.H. Auden's poem, September 1, 1939, which was occasioned by Nazi Germany's invasion of Poland. And the stanza reads, All I have is a voice to undo the folded lie, the romantic lie in the brain, of the sensual man in the street, and the lie of authority whose buildings grope the sky. What's the significance of that epigraph in your book? Those lines in Auden's poem just jumped out at me when I read them, and especially the line about the authority whose buildings grope the sky. I thought, oh my goodness, he's talking about a guy who who owns Trump Tower and, and owns all these other skyscrapers and puts his name on them. You know, Auden, of course, was writing in 1939 when authoritarians threatened the peace of the world. He could do nothing in response except to write this poem, which was a very powerful poem, which is still read to this day. And I'm certainly not a great poet like like W.H. Auden, but I'm a writer, and so I'm just trying to express in my own way, in, in my own book, my protest against these lies and against this extremism, which I think threatens the world today. Now can you say something positive so we don't have to, we don't have to end <laughs> on a note of gloom and destruction? Well, the positive will occur if Republicans suffer a drubbing in the, in the November election, which I, I ardently hope will happen. Saying that as somebody who used to be a lifelong Republican, who before I voted for Hillary Clinton had never voted for a Democrat in my life, but I think it's imperative that Republicans are soundly defeated in November, and I take some comfort in seeing polls, at least in the House, uh, the Democrats are likely to take over, but you know you can't be overly sanguine because, of course, the polls are also showing that Donald Trump was going to lose, and so you know everybody needs to needs to make their vote count, and and I think whatever you may think about Democratic candidates, and I will you know disagree with a lot of what Democratic candidates say, and I disagree with a lot of what Republican candidates say, but I think just for the health of our democracy, I think it's imperative to vote for Democrats because you need to have checks and balances on the excesses in the White House, and Republicans have shown pretty consistently they will not stand up to this president. Max Boot, congratulations on the book. Thank you. I hope you get a lot of people to buy it, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much. Great conversation. Really enjoyed it. So I'd like to end the show this week by talking about something that I first mentioned some months ago. You'll recall that in the wake of all these sort of busting of norms by the President of the United States in various ways, through the good offices of the Brennan Center, uh, we formed a task force called the National Task Force on the Rule of Law and Democracy that I have been co-chairing all year with another former guest of the podcast, former Governor Christine Todd Whitman of New Jersey. And last week, we released our first report that we're very proud of. We talk about all sorts of ways that our government has sort of veered off the path of doing things the right way, whether you're talking about conflicts of interest, whether you're talking about the application of the pardon power, whether you're talking about the separation of law enforcement from politics. It's something that I talk about a lot on the show, that I talk about in my classes at NYU, and that I care about very deeply. And I would urge you to read the report. It's not that long. You can find it at democracytaskforce.org. And you'll see that we have, I think, common sense, bipartisan proposals that deal with a whole host of things like urging Congress to pass a law requiring presidential and vice presidential candidates to disclose their tax returns going back three years, to revamp ethics disclosure obligations, to protect special counsels such as they are, to have Congress require presidents to justify pardons 
of close associates or family members. Now, I've noticed some people on Twitter have been asking, you know, really good questions about why certain policy provisions and recommendations came out the way they did. For example, people have been asking why our recommendation was for tax returns to go back only three years. You know, to be sure, it's absolutely reasonable for people to say that tax returns should be disclosed going back, you know, perhaps five years or seven years or eight years, and some candidates have done that. And my view is the more the better. However, with respect to that proposal, the point was to try to come up with some reasonable rule of thumb, common sense approach that would get broad bipartisan support actually in Congress. And the three years, I'll explain, came from the fact that that's how long the IRS requires citizens to keep their tax returns. So it seemed a good, fair, hard to oppose proposal. And the other proposals sort of are in that vein. We have more to come. We didn't prescribe detailed, specific statutory language for members of Congress to adopt, but rather, you know, enough detail that they got the idea of what this group of folks who have served in high office before think, but also giving them some flexibility to, you know, bargain and compromise with their fellow members of Congress to come up with things that I think will help in the long term. And just, I want to emphasize again what Governor Whitman and I emphasized last week at the National Press Club when we announced our report. Sure, some of the reason that we're thinking about these things and talking about them is because of the current administration. But our, our effort, and I hope the effort of people who are listening, is not just about what's happening now, but about the future, and not just the future in this administration, but the future of any administration, because the precedents that are being set and the norms that are being broken are things that we don't want to see happening by any future president, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. And so the next time there's an election and there's some wealthy Democrat who decides, I too want to maintain all of my business interests all over the world. I too want to get the benefit of avoiding the prescription of the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. I too want to think about pardoning myself or pardoning family members. That should be as anathema then as we feel it is now. So the purpose of this is to sort of tackle again what we think are core deficiencies in how our government operates, particularly in the executive branch, and hopefully spread the word about it. So if you have a minute, take a look, read it. And I want to thank all the members of the task force who put in a lot of time, who are very busy people, former government officials, aside from myself and Governor Whitman. It was Mike Castle, Christopher Edley, Chuck Hagel, David Iglesias, Amy Comstock-Rick, and Don B. Varelli Jr., Thank you all for your hard work. There's more to come. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Max Boot. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Barube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Vinay Basti, and Tamara Sepper. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay Tuned.